Welcome to the Startup Microdose podcast with me, Oliver Jones, and my sanguine co-host, Ed Stevens. This conversation is with Maya Pindeus. Maya is the founder of Humanizing Autonomy, who are using deep machine learning to become the standard for communication between autonomous systems and people. Their first product, Blink, is computer vision for autonomous vehicles, which can understand even culturally specific human gestures. We discuss architecture, city design, deep learning, and the unknown reality of a symbiotic future with autonomous machines. We ask how deeply can communication between man and machine go? And what will that mean for the future of our world? So without further ado, we bring you Maya Pindeus. And we're live here with Maya Pindeus of Humanizing Autonomy. Thank you very much for coming on, Maya. Thank you for inviting. Um, today's going to be quite an episode. I think we're going to try and take people into a journey of understanding your latest company, which is aiming to help computers uh, via computer vision understand human emotions. Um, but I think there's probably a, a good prelude up to that. So um, to get a bit of context from your background, um, because it wasn't sort of just computer science and technology, you grew up in Austria? Yes, that's right. I'm um, originally from Vienna, Austria, yep. which is also where I started my academic career. I am um, originally an architect, which I guess is very a bit unusual for, I guess, a tech company founder. Makes all the sense in my head, but um, I don't know. Let's see. Um, so essentially, I studied architecture in Vienna um, under Sahadit, um, this uh, British architect, which was, um, I guess, a very defining period. It was very much about the obviously built environment, about design, but also about the city, the urban environment. Environment. So I guess I got very passionate about um, well, how cities work and how we can design for cities. Um, and also about uh, the interaction between people, the built environment, and then increasingly people and machines. Which is that why I then shifted from architecture towards more interaction design and product design. Worked There are a lot of like uh, installa- installation stuff, such as beautification, uh, beauty robots, and how people interact with like um, beauty and AI, and this kind of thing. So I was in a um, experimental artistic context. Then moved on to Imperial um, and DRCA, the discourse called Innovation Design Engineering, where I met my co-founders. Um, and we started what is humanizing autonomy now as a research project at Imperial. Okay, and, and you were given free reign to go in and pick that topic? Or did it fit within the kind of lecture series that you were? Absolutely uh, free. So. We picked a, well, what we thought, we still think an interesting team. So it was me as an architect, we had a software mechanical engineer and design engineer together. Um, and I guess we started with the most naive hypothesis you can basically come up with. How can we make net, um, urban environments like interact more freely and more like a natural? Um, and this is, well, this is how we started a company. So essentially what we did, we took a very human-centered approach. So first we just went out in the streets, um, interviewed loads of people, filmed, observed what's, what are the biggest trends, the biggest obstacles to make cities feel natural and nice today. Right? And I think traffic is one of the biggest ones. You can have a really shit day, never talk with any person, but you, there's no day you won't encounter at least like... 20 cars, I'd say. Mm-hmm. So it's really an important thing. Um, so we're looking at um, how people interact on streets. We're looking at how this human-to-human interactions between a pedestrian and a driver are just very 
just um, yeah, we take it as a given, and it's really important for our city's work. But with autonomous vehicles coming in, that's not really being explored and not being developed, which is why we started a humanizing autonomy essentially. So your starting point was an architectural one, or a, a sort of a land and cityscaping one, rather than starting from the premise of um, automatic vehicles coming into existence yeah very much so i think uh two starting points definitely the urban one the architectural one can say and the other one is the interactive one so just a deep interest in how machines and people interact and just exploring it and so i think those two things um were were the starting point and then autonomous vehicles came in and i think this is something that we value quite a lot within a company that we didn't say oh autonomous vehicles are cool we're going to do something with it we're mm -hmm. like no cities are cool um, and we need to think about how we're going to interact with AI and I guess autonomous vehicles are really important with that and so we need to make them better can I go back to a question um, that, that you just raised when you were doing your research on finding out what was um, shaping urban environments what did you start to to understand because I uh, there was a project in Copenhagen called I think it was the eight house that was designed as this amazing figure of eight house, but it was built, uh, there's a good TED talk on it, with the idea of, of facilitating um, social interaction, green space, as much green space as you could have, and then also the sight lines of the apartments were, were better and really well designed. Um, so when it comes down to, I guess, human-led satisfaction, what did you pick up from your research? I think um, the first thing that we picked up was flow. How, how flow in a city works mm. and flow can be how people you know in, in one uh, level it can be how people spend their you know just their day to commute uh, from waking up to going back home that's one type of flow but then there's the flow within the city it's just like um people are relaxed people are stressed people are in cars people are rushing to the tube and all of it somehow works together um and i think we started there's a very nice uh Jeff by this video artist that we used um, to, to refer to in presentations. It's basically a, a video collage of just different crazy traffic flows, like cars moving, uh, motorcycles, cyclists, and- From above. People. Yeah, it's kind of a, a big crossing. It's like kind of bird's eye-ish. So right. you see just like, and, and no one hits each other. So somehow it works, but obviously it's just a video collage. But it's a nice thing of thinking like, well, somehow the city, Somehow it, it, it turns out working, and a lot of it is rule-based, definitely, mm -hmm. but a lot of it is just, you know, human intuition. Well, people talk about the, the dwelling habits of people anyway. Um, my friend went to drama school, and they had this really interesting um, exercise about kind of how space was shaping your performance and, and your levels of agitation. And they talked about airports being very angular because the, the goal of an airport is it's rigid structures to drive you through the system so you, you check in and you, you move through that, that flow. And then as soon as you put round surfaces or objects, people tend to start dwelling, which is why um, nowadays I think architecture is meant to be more inclusive that they have this these more sort of square like dwelling spaces under the high rises they're building because otherwise if you've got parallel lines people just flow up and down the street and they will not take in their surroundings and so you mm. have a different relationship with it um did you find because i guess you did your architecture in in austria so was the way it was taught and the focuses there different to the uk not very much to the UK, I would say. I would say um, Europe as as a whole is just quite. Um, I mean, it's it's. Um, I would say a vernacular in a way structure. So it emerged over centuries. So I think the reason why um, why traffic and then how people how people behave in the city is not necessarily so 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 rule based, and it seems like it emerged. You know, um, I think the nicest and biggest difference is probably the US, where. 
um, because cities are much younger and their cities are like 80 years or even younger, you know, and you see how they build this strict separation of like where are pedestrians allowed to go, where are cars allowed to go, and you have Houston, Texas, a really great example, right? All those crazy highways and everything seems extremely separated, which maybe made sense at the time because, I mean, it was also following a trend, but it doesn't seem like a natural way of, of interacting with the city, at least to me. Um, so I think the way it was taught in in, um, in, in Austria, and I think this applies to, to, to the UK as well, is that it, it, it always needs to emerge from something that has been here already, and it needs to somehow um, improve it. Mm. Um, it might be something completely new and disruptive, but there needs to be a link to, if we're talk, still talking architectural terms, to the, um, a classic building next to it, because somehow they need to like, you know, coexist. And I think that's a nice approach as well, because it's not to forget about, you know, um, what has been there before, but just improve it and make it, yeah, make it nicer. And in terms of function, is it a huge problem that most cities were built before uh, the inception of, of the motor vehicle? I, I I don't think so. I, it probably makes it challenging. Mm -hmm. But I think for me, the aim is to make um, vehicle automated vehicles and then pedestrians who kind of co coexist without having to change the city completely and right. without having to rebuild a completely new city. So I think, yeah. If you were able to rebuild a city or build a city from scratch, would it be radically different? I'm not asking you to design it right now, but would it be radically different from from the way things are structured now? Um, I think I would probably, uh, I don't know, but I, I think what it, what it would really emphasize is, is to really look from like bottom up, from people's up, and I think it will be a lot about just the public spaces, how they yeah. how they function, how they can be more inclusive. So I think I would build from this side. It wouldn't maybe necessarily build about the buildings really, um, um, but just I think how the, you know, um, yeah, how the circulation like really works, the navigation within a city. I was going to say London's interesting in its own right because um, a lot of it is very old buildings, but right alongside stuff that was built in the 50s, 60s as a sort of reaction to yeah, yeah. the war. And that's why it's it's become so, so such a, like a patchwork quilt of, of different architectural designs and structures. And I think it's becoming a bit strange in London in that there's a lot of money to be made out of the property development industry. And and even, let's say, take Putney, for example, where I grew up, there's two rival developers next to each other that aren't seemingly building to a, a cohesive architectural plan. The structures look similar, and I'm sure they're built to a sort of seven-story specification. But in terms of the design, they, they're quite jarring, which I think is a real shame because mm. it doesn't give an identity to, to the region um, and, and it seems very sort of uh, insular or individualistic, but it, it, there's no common theme. And, that, and one thing I love about architecture of old was it carried a theme of maybe, you know, 100 years where there was a certain style and there's a whole region that kind of embodies that almost like flawlessly. Mm. Um, just, just quickly before we um, move on to humanizing autonomy, did you ever look at um, or study, look, I think he's called Le Corbusier, his redesign of Paris? Yes. Because that's, that's incredibly famous, isn't it, for its, for being totally well, kind of offbeat and radical. Look, I yeah, yeah, he definitely came up a lot during architecture. So the redesign was Paris and then um, Brasilia um, was also Corbusier and, um, oh, name I forgot, also Chandigarh in India. So I think it's really exciting how, I mean, it's just because that's really th rethinking a place from the ground up as if it was nothing there before, just doing it completely from scratch. I think that's admirable and like from a research academic perspective, it's really, really exciting. Yeah. I just, I, I personally think 
the bigger challenge or the more interesting one is how to integrate everything. And I think this applies very well to new technologies as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, as long as we don't get bombed, there's no like reason that we'll ever have space to build new cities. Yeah. So we've got to integrate with what exactly, we've got. Exactly, yeah. Um, and so on that on that note, humanizing autonomy, um, how would you describe it to our listeners who, who've never heard of it in a few sentences? Mm-hmm. Sure. So I guess I'd start with like we're developing or our premise is to develop natural interactions with um, autonomous systems. Um, we're developing, I would say, human-centered AI, which is a prediction platform that allows autonomous vehicles to understand and predict human behavior. I guess what we do is we fuse two streams. And one thing is a very data-driven approach. So we use computer vision, deep learning to create a database, a platform of um, human behavior, human movement, and mm-hmm. so on. But on the other hand, it's really important that we look at context and culture-specific behavior, which means that we rely a lot on behavioral model building and understanding how people behave in different environments in different cities and how can we improve our algorithms with it. So it's really, it's really we call it a bottom-up um, and top-down approach. It's kind of meeting in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, sorry, sorry, I was going to say... And so we can bring people up to speed who I think aren't that well-versed in computer vision. The one thing to know is it's quite old technology, isn't it? I mean, barcodes are uh, an instance of computer vision, but um, what are the current uh, ways that's developed and adapted? I mean, how, how does a computer see an object? Mm-hmm. So um, in our case, for instance, we, uh, well, we use a normal video footage, camera footage. Um, and so the way, what it does is really, it's identifying traditionally, traditionally in an autonomous car space, mm-hmm. um, the way um, objects, uh, obstacles and pedestrians would be identified is just like um, looking at the video footage and the sensor footage and understanding, well, here's a pedestrian, identifying pedestrian, like with a bounding box almost, um, identifying infrastructure and so on. And like that, segmenting, understanding where the street is. And it's almost like annotating uh, the image. If you look out of the window and then you're like, how would an uh, algorithm um, see it, process it, it would be basically annotating different things. What we're doing, though, is well those, those things are great and are really important to get a car to drive so they they already exist right because exactly, there are yeah. there are autonomous vehicles exactly exist. yeah and sorry is that defined by um the difference in rgb values a mix of it it's uh it's sorry and that there was red green blue values to mm. anybody who who doesn't like acronyms um yes yeah, so it, it can be defined where um, this or by pixels it also a lot of annotation today is just hand labeled really so it's like a lot of people just like amazon mechanical turk for, for, for instance it's a very popular one yeah yeah because w- ImageNet was built for amazon mechanical i think turk, so wasn't it? yeah, yeah. You know, it's something huge about fifty thousand volunteers going around mm. yeah it's a bit this crowd crowdsourcing crowd labeling um which is something we're trying to avoid i'd say so one thing one uh, bottleneck on deep learning um which is a um, the AI uh, technique that we're using um, is that it needs a lot of data, it needs a lot of annotated data. Mm-hmm. So what we're doing is we're auto-annotating. So we're building almost like different tools um, to process the video image, that, uh, the video sequence that we use, um, and to auto-annotate. So we don't need hand labeling for it. What is the process of auto-annotation? Um, uh, do you need to have a training data set to be able to then steer it on annotating what it thinks is a human emotion um, it's not necessarily about the human emotion so it's about um, the auto annotating for us it's about well is someone 
um, where's a pedestrian, someone crossing and so on. So what we're interested in is we're, we say we're going beyond the bounding box because what hasn't been done in autonomous vehicle technology before that is um, understanding why a person moves the way they move um, and why, how do you manifest intent when crossing the street? Mm-hmm. So which is why what we're focusing on. So we're really looking at um, uh, the body language. We're looking at, uh, well, um, the context. So um, with the location, the different environments uh, where things happen. Uh, we're looking at the implicit and explicit gestures. To give an example, during our research project at Imperial, so what we came up with, um, which is really the start of, of the company, we built this prototype uh, called Blink um, that allowed us to allowed you to communicate with an autonomous car with a um, um, via explicit gestures. So basically, you could like you would raise your arm and um, um, do different types of gesture and get a response from the prototype slash vehicle. And that was kind of an interesting start for us, saying, well, if you want to, if you, the vehicle would be able to understand what you do, your actions, it needs to be able to communicate as well. So we started this whole like two way communication loop with. They called it explicit gestures. But while developing a product, so this was the start, right? Like, well, it's really important. Explicit gestures are important, right? Uh, you, you might raise your hand to hail a taxi and all those things. But actually, it's the implicit gestures. The things that are almost invisible that really matter, you know? Like a car driving up and you're just maybe stepping your left foot onto the um, curb, um, but then you know, moving backwards, or you're basically just standing by the, I don't know, by the traffic light. and. The, just absorbed in your WhatsApp, um, mm. but actually not crossing the street. All the things are important for an autonomous vehicle because what it would do now, it would just be human stop, you know? Yeah. And does it's it's twofold, right? On one hand, it's inefficient. It's like they, they won't be able to drive in dense urban environments um, if they don't have this like more subtle knowledge. On the other hand, it's about safety as well. It's about being able to understand what is going to happen next. So if I, can I just check I've understood this correctly? At the moment, uh, an autonomous vehicle sees sees uh, a block, which you described as a, bound, a bounding block. Bounding box, yeah. Um, and that's uh, just box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, that's so when it sees me, it doesn't see all the the sort of the movements and the gestures that I naturally make. It just sees a, a rectangle. Um, and so what you're doing is allowing it to annotate uh, in much much finer, more subtle detail, such that it can predict with a far higher degree of accuracy uh, in order to drive well and, and safely. Exactly, yeah, that's that's right. So um, if you take, yeah, basically the way you explain it is great. Um, it's uh, taking, currently seeing how here's person, right? A bounding box. Um, um, but not just that there's a person that might be walking a certain, or like moving a certain direction or something, doesn't really tell you much about their intent. Mm-hmm. But what we do a lot is like certain things, like you, we're looking left and right, we're reacting to stimuli, where we're, the way we're orientated on the street um, gives us a lot of information about what we're going to do next. And this is where we pick up and, and build a prediction. Right, and y- sorry, and, sorry, and you mentioned um, culturally specific gestures, mm-hmm. which sounds extraordinary that level of um, perception on a machine's part. Can you give an example of a culturally specific gesture? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think already London is very peculiar. If you think about, um, if we compare London and, for example, Vienna, where I'm from, yeah. just um, safety awareness. So it's, to, again, it's the safety awareness. So in London, there's a lot of jaywalking, as we all know. Yeah. Um, and in Austria and Germany, for example, it's not really like that. And there's multiple reasons for that. And one thing is probably um, the law um, enforcement. It's um, just the mutual safety awareness um, yeah. and, uh, and probably the cultural learning. Um, 
And so, for example, in London, people would, um, a pedestrian expects to be able to be jaywalking, but a driver would only expect a pedestrian to be jaywalking. And as a mutual understanding, somehow it works. If I would behave the same way in Vienna as I do in London, I'd probably be heavily injured by now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so those are like interesting things within Europe, like two hour flight away. Yeah. Then, for example, if you look into Asia, um, that it's completely different again, or in the US, right? And it's also about the amount of people that you have on the street. Um, European cities are quite crowded. Asian cities are really crowded. US cities, for instance, um, Silicon Valley, I mean, it's really empty, re- um, really. Right. And mm. this is where the um, autonomous vehicles are being trialed. So I think it's quite easy then. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> have, they, have they tried autonomous vehicles? I went to Delhi last year. And the traffic there is extraordinary. It's insane. Isn't in Delhi? It? In Delhi. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely crazy. Absolutely yeah. extraordinary. And you know, Delhi was built. Uh, the new parts of Delhi with drivers in mind it was built around the idea that vehicles had, had emerged so it was specifically really? for them and it's absolute chaos well it's because there's so many vehicles um, so have they tried do you know if they've tried autonomous vehicles there? I don't think they have I don't I, I don't know of any uh, trying in India I, would, I think I, 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 I p- pity the poor machine <laughs> yeah. that gets set loose in Delhi it's so still waiting <laughs> at the first roundabout it meets it's waiting and waiting waiting never getting any further yeah <laughs> Because <laughs> I I agree the the self driving movement fascinating as it is um, has always been slightly confusing to Londoners I think because we've all gone down weird side streets and that are too narrow for cars to pass and then I've driven in North America where you drive for five hours in an automatic car on a six lane highway and there's a grid system at the end of it which seems a lot more forgiving in nature. Um, your context dependency was quite interesting and I actually also wanted you to highlight the fact of the two-way communication. That came via a heads-up display on the, the windscreen, didn't it? Yes, yes. So I think um, this is not what we're doing as a product, really. So we, we built this prototype which implemented the data set and the prediction um, with a heads-up display. So essentially, um, by, by once being understood by the vehicle, the vehicle can communicate that it's understanding you. So I think that's extremely important because what we're working on as a product is the one side of the equation. We're working on the vehicle being able to really understand and predict what we're doing. But then there's a second side to it. How does it communicate that it understands? This is something that we're um, working on with projects mm-hmm. and uh, with OEMs and um, how can our technology enable the interaction and the communication. So it's something that almost comes afterwards. And what's your remit for context dependency? Because you made some good points about um, where the person is, but could you feasibly drill into, say, Google Maps and say it's midnight, there's three clubs on Google Maps appearing in this region, so expect irrational behaviour of drunk mm. revellers spilling out into the streets? Is, or, or is there a limit to how far you can start to grab open source data to train these models? Not necessarily. I think I think that's a really nice point that you made. I think it's really important to um, it's important at first to understand how uh, detailed the context understanding has to be because uh, the examples I gave are like different countries, right, different cities and countries. But then you have to context within cities and so on. This is something that we're exploring with uh, with a behavioral scientist in, in our team of really understanding what determines how people behave um, and and people's crossing intent right and things like yeah a nightclub or uh makes a big makes a big impact right the the problem is is it's it's people are very hard on autonomous vehicles i mean normal drivers hit people all the time but i think there'll be absolute outcry if an autonomous vehicle runs over a drunk person who may have been in the wrong it's not forgivable so you almost need to take it to the nth degree of fidelity to make sure 
it doesn't happen because um, isn't something that computer vision also suffers from is um, the difference in in shading and light in its mm. environment because of it's harder for it to pick up uh, I guess you know in, in bright sunlight if I put my hand up and say stop versus it being nighttime I'm stood behind a tree and then I emerge to run across the road um, where are you at with with problems as complicated as that so night time and you know, mm. half gestures and stuff yeah, like yeah, that yeah. so I think uh, in terms of um, what we're good in identifying whatever is within the vehicle's vision right so whenever someone is within the scope of the camera then that's good for us um, in terms of we've been testing with different situations daytime nighttime winter I mean really London essentially we have uh, all of it in London um, um, so yeah, I think um, we don't have troubles identifying nighttime um, and, 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 and bad like weather situations. Um, so that's been quite good um, currently. Is that the biggest, or well, one of the big obstacles is collecting the data? It is. It is also, but in a way, it's about collecting data, but it's about smart processing of data, which is what our um, approach is all about. We're basically what we're doing, we're saying, well, by knowing, um, having this behavioral models how people behave we know we can identify on an almost limited amount of data and information that we need and we can transfer it from one environment to the other let's say we're really focusing on London at the moment um, building a data set building our prediction models for London but then we will be able to to transfer it let's say to Munich um, um, without having to retrain from scratch from Munich so I think it's about almost a smart processing of data right because you uh, published a Medium article that I think addresses quite well, which is there's the harvesting of endless amounts of, of training data, but there's also um, in a studio, for instance, you can take a three-dimensional, you know, views of my hand gesture from all directions, and then you can start to build out a model of me and my the space that I take up and then start to take footage, footage that you're seeing and then build a model around that so mm. you could anticipate what I'd look like, turn 45 degrees, 90 degrees. But wasn't there a criticism of that, that sometimes it can it can be a bit too um, too bounded to, to me, the individual? So if somebody six foot six starts to do that, it's not as good at picking it up because yeah. the model's changed or grown or... That is true. I mean, it's, you have to be careful you're not biasing your system right. because that's kind of what, what would happen in that case. But I think what our... Um, so the medium article of it that deep learning being a design challenge um, it's almost like um, trying to be controversial in a way and you know, making people understand that design is actually a part of AI a really important one because it's about data and it's not necessarily about having loads of data it's about being smart with your data um, and choosing what you need from it and then and, and, and preparing it properly and I think this is something that we um, engage with quite heavily and, and one reason for that being is the whole behavioral aspect that we don't think just feeding a deep learning system loads of footage is going to do the job um, because it needs to have more information on it and yeah is this where your your background um, in architecture and design marries quite nicely onto what you're doing I think so I think uh, definitely my background and also Leslie my co-founder one of my co-founders who also has a design engineering background um, that's I would say where like our contribution to it would be like it's definitely about the whole system and urban thinking but then also about uh, understanding that design is important for mm -hmm. AI yeah. and marrying it with uh, with our approach Did you have a vision um, for cars and how they may be redesigned around once they achieve um, 
self-driving because essentially they just need a camera then they don't need a big windshield and yeah, yeah. windows so have you ever kind of dreamed up what they might start looking like uh, yeah I have I, um, I've been working with uh, the University of the Arts in Zurich I've been doing some uh, teaching there last uh last winter and it was all about uh, redesigning the car so I didn't redesign myself but it was really nice working with students on that um, and like different like crazy approaches what was the best one I don't know there was uh, what I really like were like pods like different pods that would be like you could dock to a like large scale massive uh, almost like not train but um, like a centipede yeah yeah, a bit like it's like a centipede but like going in a front axis and then um, would be like um, and then could go on on their own whenever they need it and not so it was a really nice mix of um usability and you know and avoiding the whole cars would be um that cars would be just like driving around and all this like parked uh, a new space there was another one again on a centipede it would be like um um stretching out so it was just like this flexible material you could basically could shrink and and expand according to peak and commuting times and mm. i know it was really funny um and i think really good because um what i really appreciate is if when design or like innovative things are being made and are looked at from a completed outside angle because those were all industrial design mm. students and then material students hence the movement uh, materials and so on but i think with this approach a lot of times really innovative things um, happen i had an interesting thought about how the cars could change because i know, <laughs> I know dangerous right because <laughs> um, cars if in an autonomous driving landscape probably won't fear bumping into other cars as much i think they'll be incredibly good at avoiding each other so you can probably design them so that they're safer for impact with people and not have to worry so much about impact with other vehicles yeah, so the crumple zones become yeah and become, then you could just yeah. change them around that mm, that hypothesis mm. because it, it, in a in a perfect system they really shouldn't hit each other that's actually not something i'm overly concerned about I mean, yeah, yeah yeah it's more with people essentially yeah i mean the exterior airbag kind of yeah a hug a hug yeah it just boarded with hugs <laughs> <laughs> don't touch me get off me um i'm a little bit confused as well why it's a great challenge to take on as well with the self-driving cars but often this overlooks bigger vehicles like i would have thought self-driving buses would have been maybe easier Probably, yeah. Um, or, or lorries. <laughs> but there's or a lot trains, of trains, tube trains. I, well, they um, seem to still DLR. get tube strikes. Mm. DLR. Um, DLR, yeah. DLR is autonomous. Right. Yeah. But, the, but it's just, you know, those vehicles that tend to have a, a bit more of a defined pattern, like a bus is quite consistent in the yeah, route yeah. that it'll take, uh, where it's, it's, it's stopping and, and how it's picking people up. And I always wondered why that wasn't attacked first before we kind of try and get everybody's cars yeah so I think there's different conceptions about mobility so I think in general it's about it's going to be a shared system um, there are there are autonomous bus companies I think I believe Navia is one of them is like a French company and what they've been doing quite well they've been partnering up with um, industry partners for example in Switzerland they've been trialing this autonomous public bus along the Alps so it's mm. obviously a a not very crowded area, but it's nice to have those routes and they were quite perilous hours. in the Alps. Yes, They're quite, yes. quite dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> so in Sion, in, in the Alps, <laughs> I think in Austria, they also partnered up with, um, was it the Post or something to do like, I mean, a very con concise like uh, trial, but um, yeah, I don't, I mean, I think it would be very interesting to work with, um, I the public sector, Mm -hmm. to work with public transport because honestly that's what I use most uh, yeah I, I, I don't really use cars I don't drive uh, so I love public transport <laughs> and where are you at with um, the business now so we're um, 
I guess we're developing and, and improving our prediction models. So we have our prediction models and we're now in the process of iteration. So iterating them, testing, iterating, testing and so on. And um, we're partnering up with um, with uh, car companies. So we had a first uh, trial with Daimler um, cool. started in fall. So that was quite interesting. Um, we also understood that it's really important to collaborate and partner very early on because what your idea of what the real business case might be um, can really evolve while working with a large partner and I think yeah. that's one of the dangers for startups is you get so obsessed with this idea this is going to change the world and then you're bringing it out to industry like well yeah it's cool but um, so I think working early on together I think it's, it's a really good sense. one. Sometimes they just need to hit sales quotas of new vehicles and actually they're, they're more worried about making the you know the consumer envious of their new C-Class Mercedes than yeah, they exactly. are about its self-driving capabilities. What I was interested in is, is what was it like working with Alexander uh, Mikowski and how did you find him? He was the futurist at yeah, yeah. Daimler, am I correct? He's really cool. Um, so how do we find him? We um, There's an amazing festival I can highly recommend, Ars Electronica, which is in Linz, Austria, which is, I think, one of the biggest AI festivals, but always from an interdisciplinary and artistic perspective. So don't go there and expect like a lot of startup stuff. No, it's just like crazy tech stuff, but Mm -hmm. in a cool way. So, and they have um, an initiative called Starts, which is for interdisciplinarity. It's funded by the European Commission, so it's a kind of a large competition. We participated there without, before being a company. and then we won. And um, Alexander Mankowski was one of the jurors. Um, so we just started talking. Another juror, um, Sophie Lamperter from Swissnacks, invited us to San Francisco um, where we spent two months. And so basically we just started building a relationship with Alexander and he really liked what we do. And so he was our entry point to Daimler. Um, I, and I think he's a great example of um, almost like a philosophical way of looking at things, but still making it an industry. I think that's great. Is there a danger that Daimler um, want exclusivity on, on the technology? No, no, at this stage, absolutely not. And also I think for us it's really important to be um, um, either OEM or um, sector agnostic. So yes, it's about automobiles, but we're not going to be um, working with one company. It's not what it is, uh, what we want to do. We really want to be almost define a standard. Um, yeah, because you, you can't be fighting with other private organisations on this because if they have a different interpretation of human um, behaviour and that conflicts with your model, then I guess you have cars that are now acting independently yeah. of like a set standard. I think that's a really re- like big challenge at the moment. That So, I mean, industry is changing so quickly, um, but there's no standards at all. Mm. Um, so where we see a big opportunity with our technology is to help define a standard. And this made us realise that it's... It's about working with industry, absolutely, because in the end it has to be in a car, the technology, but it's equally about working with councils, cities, public bodies. So which is why we, we actually took the step and also like in, hired a um, public policy specialist in our team, because I think it's really important early on to, to build those relationships and, and just yeah, to be kind of in between both. I mean, we can't get everybody to drive on the same side of the road. let alone kind of standardizing other other policies. Maybe that's where I think um, North America is quite good because you you could take San Francisco or Google and campus and that area where they seem to love driving self-driving cars around and you have a uh, a sort of self-fertilizing ecosystem whereas mainland Europe is um, probably quite challenging. Yeah. But also, do you feel that due to the complexities of the challenge here that you have a better chance of winning in other markets because London is quite complicated and we have lots of jaywalkers 
um, that you have an authority to sort of say we encounter this problem more than you do maybe yeah I think um, I think being in a challenging environment makes it just more I think more fun it's a good starting point for us because it's something that has been overlooked by industry looking at industry um, industry and other terms vehicle initiatives they're usually coming from the US or coming from China right and mostly in the US I think um, it's being very much a North America focused by first being a European company and being um, really focusing only on urban environments and only first European and then challenging environments I think it gives us a great first move advantage What's the timeline for autonomous vehicles? So many. Uh, everyone says something else, right? Um, so I think the most likely... Um, so some say by 2021, 22, some say by 25 and so on. So I think there are autonomous vehicles out there. They're being trialled. Um, my guess, or my, I'm just that the first um, application will be almost constrained environments, like they're already like airport pods and so on. Mm-hmm. And then... Um, the current advanced driver assistance systems, which are safety systems and vehicles, um, will be the ones being built out more and more towards full autonomy. So that's something as simple today as a adaptive braking system or park lane assistance. So mm. those are like the basic, yeah. auto- very, very basic autonomous mm. functions. But um, they're being added um, on top, like uh, pedestrian detection and so on. So I think this will be the big, um, the biggest almost stepping stone towards autonomy. Can we have manual cars and autonomous vehicles we will have I mean uh, can you imagine forcing everyone either to get rid of their car or to yeah. buy a really and expensive shovel, fancy yeah. Yeah. I mean I, I guess the, um, I just find it impossible to imagine it's yeah. a twofold problem though, because you're asking people to accept autonomous vehicles and the sharing economy at the same yeah, yeah. time the way it's being sold to us at the moment and sometimes there's some really nice um, luxuries of having your own car which is that possession uh, it's just simply enjoying driving it it's leaving your clothes in there or your gym kit because you can and you don't constantly need to sweep up after yourself yeah um so i think the the absolute adoption faces this idea that we just want to share everything which do you agree with that vision for av is it in a sharing economy or will we have our own no i agree with av and i want i I honestly want it as well because i think it's just a pain how many cars are around and they're all parked and unnecessary really but i I think in general this whole sharing economy is is interesting because it kind of assumes that everyone wants to share everything and everything's Mm going to be a service and no one wants to own anything and i am not so i'm not sure to be honest i find it i'm intrigued Mm. but when i look at my my own behavior i do want to own stuff as well and Mm. i think it's a very human thing to want to have stuff really um with cars it's okay yeah i get it because cars should be purely to take you from a to b it's just like you take the bus but you want it maybe potentially more convenient or better organized or something like that um but I assumed there will be it might become almost like a luxury or like leisure thing to be able to like drive your own car and something like that well, yeah someone said that to us on a different episode well, Andy yeah he yeah, said yeah. that he said that uh, the current cars will be like horses mm. uh, how they became a sort of uh, a leisure activity rather than a means of transport yeah it could I mean I could imagine that I, I, people, I, I imagine that people would want I, I understand that people enjoy driving but they probably don't enjoy driving through central London because it's just no, exactly. not good um, yeah. why not and then do you get self-driving motorbikes well I don't think yeah. so because the idea of a motorbike is it's kind of roaming free um, but that could really impact I mean in, in places like Vietnam where they all have loads of mopeds 
that would be the biggest hazard. And so it's almost not getting the cars to understand the traffic. It's getting the people weaving in and out, mm. you know, 20 yeah. at a time. It's just not... Yeah, I can it, see where you've got a policy uh, policy person yeah. on your team. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I mean, honestly, I prefer everyone just biking. Um, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> Cycling in cities. Yeah. Uh, Does... Um, self-driving cars run in parallel to electric vehicles because I, I guess there's a the possibility for a transition of petrol cars into electric cars and then there's obviously driving cars and self-driving cars and by bringing electric cars in you almost have like a, a new framework in which to sort of show people how cars behave and how you expect to interact with them are you doing work with electric car manufacturers to try and sort of couple this in or do both technologies just run independently mm. I think they probably will be combined. I mean, there's no need to have a self-driving petrol vehicle, really. Um, I think it will eventually be a self-driving electric vehicle. We're not... Well, we have we are in conversation with uh, autonomous car manufacturers that are elect doing electric vehicles as well. So we are having those conversations, definitely. Because, I mean, conceptually, as a consumer, if, you get, if I bought a Tesla, I would almost expect it to be able to drive itself more than a, a mm. new BMW because it's it kind of comes with the sort of futuristic label anyway. Because um, you do have to break down people's perceptions of, as you say, what a vehicle is, yeah. which to you is a means of transport, mm -hmm. um, not something to have road rage in or, or whatever else people currently use it for. <laughs> um, and, and do you get inbound interest from electric car vehicle manufacturers? Like, would you try and work with Tesla? Is that... Oh, that, that would definitely be in the type in the pipeline. Absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we're open or looking for collaborations with from tradition, like let's say traditional car manufacturers, car parts manufacturers, and all the new ones as well. I think they're really exciting. Uh, there's new Chinese uh, Chinese manufacturers, for instance, like Neo. I think it's great. Like in a few years, you just build almost like um, have functioning vehicles in the street and the whole sales pipeline. Um, Tesla is another great example, right? So I think that's really exciting also for us to collaborate with. In terms of other applications of your technology, because it, clearly it's not limited just to self-driving cars. If you build up a massive library of human behavior, um, will you also explore options of, of other applications of behavioral intent? Uh, and where are those for you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, which is why I think when I explain, talk about the company, we start saying interaction with autonomous systems, just to not limit it to cars at first. Well, I think vehicles are the most, probably the most challenging um, and the biggest market at the moment, mm -hmm. right? But um, I think that any machine or anything autonomous that has to deal with people can benefit from that. To give you an example, drone technology, drones, for instance, are very interesting for that at the workplace. So, for example, um, warehousing, all the autonomous lorries and um, 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 in, in, in distribution centers, um, are very, I think a great example as well. They have to deal with people, people have to deal with them, let's put it that way, um, all the time. Um, collaborative robots, so um, at the assembly line, for instance, um, there's a lot of, um, there's been a big effort being made of making robots look smaller, nicer, and being like almost like a companion, like um, when working either in the lab or in the assembly line and so on. I think there again, it's very much about interacting. It's about the robot understanding the person, the person communicating to the robot. Um, then, I mean, that's, I guess, autonomous vehicles comes to the whole delivery, last mile delivery, mm -hmm. I think is a very interesting one as well. So I think there's a huge scope and um, what we will be doing is 
looking to expand across verticals because if we say we're building with a standard of home standard of how machines and people communicate or interact then it's not limited to vehicles at all did you see um uber's press release about their um electric quadcopter yeah i've seen that <laughs> what what's your opinion on those um what is it sorry um they've made a really cool and, and quite reliable light um okay i guess helicopter quadcopter hybrid that's going to be an air taxi that they want to be as affordable as an uber x but one the urban environment is going to have to produce landing pads for them so you may not be able to go point to point in the sense that uh, an uber driver might and two i guess you've got to get comfortable with wanting to go sort of a couple of hundred feet in the air mm. Which I don't think I would. I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I just want to end up in my destination. Yeah, they should maybe start trialing in Sao Paulo. So I, I once ah. read that Sao Paulo is one of the, I think yeah, that's the biggest density of helipads in the world. Really? Yeah. I mean, is that due to the the super rich? <laughs> I assume oh. so. So maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I've been to Sao Paulo. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a, a bit of a wealth gap. Yeah. The highest density of, of yeah of helipads. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, but it's got really big traffic problems there. Oh yeah. Definitely. I mean, there's so many people. I mean, how many? It's like mm, 20 million, 25. I love Sao Paulo, though. But I mean, it seems like if you want to do air taxes, you might um, maybe look there. Might have That's a good point, because when you <laughs> land um, into Sao Paulo and you look out the window of the aircraft, the city just goes to the horizon line. It's, it's, it's so crazy. big. Really? Yeah. And actually, the bus infrastructure doesn't do it justice. Cars all just get jammed in the major sort of thoroughfares. So if you want to go from the airport into the city centre, I think it'd be amazing. Yeah, in I London, so. it terrifies yeah. me. Or also, London is not very. I mean, they're, they're, London doesn't have high rises really. London is very flat, so um, I I don't know how the um, air taxi, if it will ever um, happen, um, how it would work in London. I could see that cities that are extremely dense and extremely like um, um like a lot of high rises. I could see something like that actually. I don't think it's completely utopian. I just don't think it will work with legislation and and with current laws. But you, do you think drones will drone delivery? Yes, I think so. I mean, I, I think it's it's tricky though. I mean, they're so annoying. Yeah, exactly. There, every I don't see drones very often to be honest. But every mm. time I see one, I feel a bit like oh, observed. They're intrusive. Yeah, and they they buzz like a really offensive wasp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your picnic. I think the acceptance rate is not very great. I, I imagine seeing a drone as a as a woman's probably more offensive than as a man. Yeah. I, hate, I mean, I if somebody wants to photograph me, then it's yeah. a bit of a waste of their camera space yeah I once saw a drone on the beach that was weird you know that's really yeah. weird yeah but then it might be just like a kid playing around you know or it might be someone just creeping I, I don't yeah. know it's just um, there's not enough control over yeah. it it's, I think kids can be pretty creepy too <laughs> that's true <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> see my we were my I, I tutor for a family and uh, we were staying in uh, in a uh, on a yacht in the Caribbean and there were loads of other yachts that belonged to you know, extremely um, prominent, wealthy people, and he was flying his drone. He was hidden in the bushes, flying it onto the decks of these boats, and trying to. And these are the, like the most private people. And this but, awful kid was. I mean, I admire him for his ten tenacity, but uh, there were security guards just came running, really it, out of the woodwork. Yeah, that's oh crazy. Because I, I, I can picture a sort of DHL lorry going around, sort of let's say the the. Midwest of America where you may have a property one mile that way and another one that way and you don't need to go up a, a dirt path to go and deliver the package 
right up to the minute and if it drove along and the drones went out and dropped stuff off and came mm. back to it but I think in urban environments um, I mean how many of those could you have you, mm. uh, before the sky is thick or then you have to create lanes of, of yeah, drones yeah. just going back and forwards and um, I, I think there's sometimes there's a bit of a sort of technology vanity to things um, a case in point being Google Glasses where oh, yeah. conceptually they, they're great for the user or the person who has a vested interest in seeing them used and in this case it would be the delivery companies but in actuality as you say people can feel a little bit private or mm. monitored I don't know yeah it's just this I mean, kind of a hype curve right I mean new tech comes and then everyone's everyone loves it and then people start thinking I feel like there's a very like a good pattern there just first comes the fascination then comes to like oh well wait wait now we're going to have um, actually AIs in our homes um, autonomous anything is being planned but how are we going to deal with it it seems like the level of technology we're reaching nowadays it, it makes that issue so much worse I mean it was, with gene editing I was mm. saying we had someone um, James Field on um and it's like, yes, you can develop this this technology to edit human genes at the most basic level, but really you ought to think about the implications of that before you get to that technology. Mm. And it's the same with, with AI, I think, yeah. and that's why a lot of people are worried about it. You can't put it back. For like for ge mm. general application, super intelligence AI, mm. rather than um, uh, really sort of narrowed, as but, in your case. Yeah, but the good thing about, uh, good thing, but the thing about AI is it's a, it's, it's a choice as well um, and yes it's, it's it's also a choice whether you want a generalist super intelligence AI, whether it's possible or not whether this is a good thing this would benefit society and this is something that would yeah actually be helpful and I think it's a choice that, that let's say not only tech industry but also governments and everyone together have to make and only that way I think it can be a mindful you know uh, beneficial yeah, thing but we all know how different governments decide in different directions absolutely yeah absolutely and, and one issue here I see is how the um, technology is backed up so Google Glass is bad Snapchat filters good same thing I, I promise you Snapchat is just gathering yeah, yeah. thousands and thousands millions and millions of data yeah. points on what a human face looks it's all like deletable <laughs> yeah so it just yeah. it goes into their system and, and trains their AI to detect your face so it can put sunglasses on you but it's just another way of surrendering the same information just branding isn't it yeah like, it's exactly it's crazy how brand and marketing how it what an impact it has yeah. package um, it differently yeah. and people love it I mean God, God knows how much the iPhone X knows about people's different facial gestures yeah, and recognition yeah. well I said to you this yeah. morning there was a Alexa an, you know, an article about Alexa on BBC News and it had um, <laughs> recorded <laughs> a couple's private conversation and then sent it to uh, a random person in their address book because it had mis apparently according to Amazon it had mistaken some of the commands yeah, great um, and Jeff Bezos isn't but suffering I mean, the that's consequences just, of that, that that's, I mean, that's not yeah too bad I guess I, I, I don't have an Alexa or Google Echo I, I'm also planning to, to buy any of those things Just I don't think so I, I do like um, Iron Man talking to is it Jarvis <laughs> I, could, I could get on board with that <laughs> an yeah. AI with a sense of humour in your house yeah, I mean, that's, yeah. Well, and, and what work are you envisaging that um, autonomous vehicles need to do in terms of acquiescing to humans by making them friendly or communicative because um, I know that your heads up display showed a green hand is it a green hand gesture or it just it sort of thumbs up yeah I would see it was basically um, showing your own silhouette in an obstructive way right um, and then whenever let's say you would be allowed to cross or not to cross which would turn green or red and so on um, I guess in, in the way we've, we've been doing it is, is, is 
by testing that um, people always recognize themselves, right? So it was a rigorous testing phase that ended up with the conclusion we just understand our own like mirror image well fair enough so the thing is like there's a lot of symbolism symbolism right traffic lights um traffic signs that we just grew up with and we're really conditioned to if we change those very like abruptly it might be dangerous in a way that we don't immediately relate to it because we've been have years or decades of, of of just knowing this means that just since we're like little children mm-hmm. um so what we understood through our testing or user testing is if a vehicle would be communicating to you and you're like in a in a crowd of people um the best thing to identify yourself was if it would be even if it's like an abstracted um silhouette of you you would always see that it's you interestingly even if there's like 10 other people around so this is why in a heads-up display what we did is like you would see that your vehicle is seeing you just by seeing yourself i know we're getting confusing um and whenever you would um communicate it would be your own silhouette being turned red or green but not the others mm. so this is kind of and this is also how i sorry can you give an example i didn't i didn't fully understand yeah that. so let's say you would be standing uh, to cross the street uh vehicles driving up sort your hands on your hips kind of thing. yeah wait, i'm just standing like that. um and um basically you would see yourself in the windscreen um as a like in our case it was a white dotted silhouette there might be other people next to you mm-hmm. but you would always see yourself just because you recognize your movements um and this essentially whenever you would for example make a gesture or the vehicle would understand something it could communicate directly to you but via your mirror image so that's a good way of getting your attention exactly because there's there's quite an interesting thing with um i guess the layering or or convolutions of um, computer vision which is that if it cannot positively identify something let's say as um a cat it'll take it one order down and say it's an animal Mm. so i guess i wonder if with our visual perception the silhouettes are sort of it's not an accurate prediction but it's a quick and easy way of triggering our own sort of self-awareness or getting our attention like saying somebody's name in a room is quite an easy way of you just tune into it Mm. Um, and I wonder rather than going there's lots of detail in this in this image that I'm picking up on as you say you recognise your own but I don't understand where the mirror mirror image is coming from it's coming from loads of testing Um, so what we did uh, during our our research project is we we started with um, how do people so basically you would put them at a crosswalk somewhere in Imperial show them a sign so like what does this mean to you do you understand that it's like yes what people understood was the most basic and most relatable to a traffic sign right but then if you're talking about an autonomous vehicle communicating only to you then it's a bit difficult because if you have a red or a green dot it would mean like a traffic light go or walk for everyone mm-hmm. but in this in our project it was about a, um, a direct communication so we started testing with different types of symbols and signs and then we started testing with just a you know a camera and a, um, um, a camera feed then we're like okay this is a bit obtrusive a bit weird we started abstracting it and we tried to be um, as relatable and as abstract as possible so essentially you would you could identify yourself but it wouldn't be like oh there's a video image of myself on the mm-hmm. street okay. so that was like it was a result of testing um, I think it was quite interesting as a, as a project but I think that um, what will be really challenging just to come back to your earlier question is how do we create uh, this communication on the street so um, you might have to communicate personally with 20 people or, or a group yeah. of school children and you obviously your heads up display is limited by being able to communicate with one at a time I guess so, yeah. And also, it's it's also about being against standards again. Like, for example, today, if you think about the headlights of a vehicle, a vehicle needs to have headlights 
but they all look slightly different because mm. every brand has a different style and so on but that's fine because that's a design style but there's certain things that are just there and and with how an autonomous vehicle communicates to people it's probably gonna have to be similar because imagine a bmw doing this kind of i don't know like a floor projection and then a mercedes is i don't know speaking to you and the other one is i don't know doing something else it will be just not working so i think what will be really interesting is how do you create this again a standard i'm talking a lot about standards here but how uh <laughs> how the car would actually be able to communicate to you and one way where we're really interested in exploring this and saying, okay, we're building this technology and with this technology, car company X, how can we then envision how your vehicle would be able to, to react back to the person? So we're kind of trying to feed it into a almost um, project-based uh, work as well. So you're trying to create a universal language for uh, the vehicle to communicate with uh, its surroundings you could you could say so one thing on one hand we just want to create a vehicle or like vehicle intelligence that's able to understand subtle human behavior um, but um, then with that I guess you can call it a language yeah but this is the second half the, the communica- second half is the communication back. yeah I think I think it will be have to be some sort of language but how long it will take and who will end up doing it and all the things is really open i think it's very fascinating and really important to to think about it and to engage in projects relating to it because Mm. in the end this is what we'll we will encounter on a daily basis what another interesting um thought experiment with regards to cars and and understanding their environment and communicating is if you put it into a police vehicle and a police vehicle turns up to a scene and it needs to quickly establish what's going on, you know, there could be, especially in America, things can obviously precipitate quite quickly and quite dangerous. Um, but where the standards will lie as to what the, the car to prevent danger is then allowed to gather information on because it mm. could look at the, the person and try and work out if they're needlessly anxious and then it's like, why well, is it a right of a, uh, a car to understand my emotions? shouldn't it just understand whether I'm going to cross the road or not? And yeah, so yeah. Th- there are specific cases where clearly it'd be beneficial if you're a police officer pulling up to a scene of a crime, if your car's already like 20 meters out, scanned it and gone, that guy's heart rate's going through the roof. Um, this is very dangerous. And I suggest parking up here and, and stopping. But so where do you, do the standards lie with regards to sort of enough is enough in terms of what constitutes our safety? Yeah. Um, good question, really. I think from, from a, data processing and collection perspective we are only well, we're only interested in things that you can observe essentially so it's never about a person's identity it's never about a person's heart rate emotions or anything it's about a person's movement in a certain environment so with that um, it's never go, It's never crossing any boundaries I think that's quite important to us as well because with the whole GDPR thing and so on I think it's really important as well though. Today's the day of Today's GDPR. the day, yeah mm-hmm. All the newsletters going <laughs> Into my trash <laughs> yeah. Yeah, All uh, compliant <laughs> <laughs> um, Yeah, so I think um, so far as it's really important to to that we never look at identities that we never look at things that would cross any boundaries we're just looking at how a person moves and behaves through observed data essentially what I find funny um, about this, politically speaking, is I think all these technologies are reasonably, you know, again, not to go back to the sharing economy, they're kind of like egalitarian. They're to sort of to give a de facto standard of people being able to get transport and presumably cheaply because you have people driving cars. But yet the decision makers or the people making the decisions about this are, are the people building the technologies. 
Because the one thing is, as a casual observer, let's say I was out in the countryside and, and I'm not involved in the tech industry, I'm just a recipient of all the decisions that are being made about technology. Um, and it's it kind of, it's scary because it's progressing so quickly that if I wasn't keeping up to speed with this and suddenly was like, oh my God, you've got computer vision that can understand my emotions, I would feel really left behind. And yet it's meant to be a sort of... Um, inequality driven principle yeah it's certain people who are mandating the decisions mm. uh, it's really hard impossible for that not to be the case absolutely impossible and this is the, the fabled thing of progress needs um, front runners mm. it can't be something that's sort of a, a communist approach because otherwise we'll all just sit yeah. with the same standard but it's do you know what I mean yeah I mean we get to vote we get to vote yeah as far as it goes though mm. we're not being manipulated by social media I guess okay. gaslighting yeah Hopefully. Well, Cambridge Analytica is closed now. Yeah, true. Did it? They shut down. Yeah, the bank, yeah. 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 Fair enough, I guess. <laughs> but yeah, I think, um, I honestly, I think the discourse is really important. The discourse between um, industry and also industry being held accountable mm-hmm. is very important. Yeah. Because that's something that comes with power and with being able to, if you got the brains and the team to, to, to build something uh, great and crazy at the same time which those things lie very well together then um, I think it's very important that there's uh, um, the ethics there's the government and there's the general opinion and all of this in the end needs to play together and one might argue that this slows things down but sometimes it's good to slow things down because it needs to be integrated into society yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. so I'm not against this I'm mm-hmm. quite pro yeah um, on a different tack mm-hmm. I have one sort of last question of this sort before we move to wrap things up um, what is the distinction between machine learning and deep learning because today those terms in AI um, have become buzzwords that get bandied around but a lot of people probably aren't clear on exactly what they mean mm-hmm. so uh, deep learning is a sub set it's usually of uh, machine learning machine learning is basically getting a system to 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 learn from a set of rules and then be able to to learn automatically what deep learning does it's almost like a layer of deep neural network it's kind of a almost abstracted version of of a brain it's uh, all Mm. based on neurons essentially so what it does is that say if you train an image with a deep learning algorithm it's looking at different layers of um, understanding essentially so if you look at an always the good example is the cat image right learning understanding whether a cat is visible in the image it's just looking at different um i would say uh instances through it it's understood looking at the um maybe at the forms it's looking at the colors looking and so on but the interesting thing about it is it's almost like a black box at the moment so what it is it's like you don't really know what the deep learning system is looking at you just know the account the amount of layers that it takes to understand um, and be understand an image, essentially, which is interesting and weird as well, because it's very important that uh, there's some sort of transparency in AI yeah. as well, which is, I guess, what we're also looking at by saying, well, if it's about how you process your data, you maybe generate some more transparency in this realm as well, or like about more understanding about what, how we feed our data into a system and what we do with it. Mm-hmm. And you score the outcome of the convolutional neural nets hypothesis so it, it, it'll say I think this is a cat I think this is a cat I think this cat that's not a cat and it'll work back down the layers of sensitivities exactly it's like the weights that you adapt essentially I think that's what I meant when it was talking about the um, the oh, picking up on your uh, silhouette was it for a convolutional neural net I guess it would get to the decision that that was you based on your um, silhouette quicker than it will by going all the way down all the orders down to like your your facial shocks, your yeah. nose, your eyes, and whatever. It'll just get get to that decision, and it'll be very confident at that point that that's mm. you. Is it like a decision tree? 
Yeah, so you know how neurons work is like it's either on or off. Yeah. And mm. then they work on the sensitivities as to whether it triggers the next layer of the filter to go, it's an animal, it's a cat, it's a cat curled up in a ball. It's th- mm. it was amazing. They had an example yesterday that I saw of they dressed a cat as a monkey and gave it a banana to eat. Mm. And so it was in like a little teddy costume dressed as a monkey eating a banana and it still worked out that it was a cat. It's pretending a cat pretending to be a monkey yeah well the cat, yeah. The cat wasn't the cat wasn't complicit in the um, in the joke cats are always complicit cats are always complicit but yeah it, it somehow managed to work out mm. that, that it was in fact seeing a cat and I guess it was because the measured sensitivities it's like the adapted way to probably and if you feed it enough images of cats then it will understand features of the cat mm. within the image right so the scoring for the cat's face may have been a, sort of an absolute one triggering the response that it was a cat Might and be, then yeah. maybe the the result that it was a monkey was indeterminate or whatever and the, <laughs> the it was like 80% cat 20% monkey in a, in a school I, yeah it's interesting um, amazing <laughs> but then you realise how complicated this is because yeah. from, from my experience of watching lectures on computer vision is it can go into a room and it can identify every object very quickly and be like you know there's your earphones there's your bottle of water but then the interplay between all of them and then you know any emotion around that that building that in is like orders yeah. and orders of complexity yeah now you see how difficult our challenges so we need to do this not over the cat or monkey but with people's movement mm. so yeah <laughs> it's quite challenging amazing, but amazing it's great challenge yeah. <laughs> um, so to, to wrap up mm-hmm. do you have um, books that you'd recommend either about AI or about entrepreneurship or anything really just yeah. learnings of your own learnings of my own so what I try to do when I, um, well, when I'm not at work is not necessarily read uh, books related to work, really. So I don't really read a lot of startup books or anything. I don't really believe in them. I think it's a lot about like, the experience that you have and what you learn. Like on, you learn so much on a daily basis, anyways, mm. and um, and from your peers. Um, I was thinking of a book that I, I'd quite like to recommend. It's called The Discovery of Slowness. Uh, it's by a German uh, author, Stan Dolny. So basically, it's about the Arctic explorer, Sir John Franklin. And I really like the story about this guy. So basically, he's been slow all his life, made extremely fun of, and like almost like slow to the border of not being like credited or able to achieve anything. But this kind of slowness made him extremely like persistent and detailed focus. Mm-hmm. So basically, he was the first one to discover the Northwestern Passage in the Arctic. And this whole book is like so beautiful because mm-hmm. we're so tender to I myself. I'm just I'm probably the opposite because I always do stuff really quickly, you know. Which I think is nice but sometimes it's good to be like reading those almost like historic figures and just like taking a step back and saying like okay there's a big value and just looking more into details and being a bit I guess more mindful about certain things yeah. so yeah I think that's a I, I love this book it's not an um, entrepreneurship book but I felt like could be some some findings from that there's a message there for people working in AI perhaps and, yeah. ge- and oh. gene editing <laughs> and, and do you delve into the sort of Isaac Asimov type books is that I do sometimes uh, recently not so much recently I was more interested in um, behavioral books so I'm, I'm reading actually what I'm reading at the moment it's related to work it's not AI though it's um, um, called People Watching it's mm. by Desmond Morris mm. um, I have the book I haven't read it it's really big it's really big yeah but it, the pages are quite thick as well I figured out it's like 500 pages but it looks like a thousand yeah um, so that would be put oh, up okay. by it <laughs> um that one's really good because I'm really interested in um, how people move and how, how people behave, essentially. So I've been very interested in the anthropological approach of things, mm-hmm. so which is the one we're taking with our company, essentially. So um, how do you almost um, create analysis of people, people's movement? How do you understand context? And the people watching one is really 
almost classifying different types of gestures and movement and so on. So that's a nice one. And if we're on the book side, I also love um, Claude Lévi-Strauss, which is a French anthropologist of the 40s, 50s, I think. Um, he basically what he did is he um, spent a lot of time in the Amazon and was like doing ethnographic research and describing uh, um, very hidden um, Amazonian uh, villages. And I think this guy is extremely defining because he's for us because he's very much working on the, there's an overarching theme of how people behave mm. all over across the world, but then really dive into his cultural specificities, which uh, he's called structuralism. Um, so yeah, that's another one. So I guess mm. my, my readings at the moment are less about AI, but more about the stuff around it that could, uh, I think, help AI. Yeah, because potentially if you miss out on a good piece of research or a book and build your tour and then somebody goes oh have you read this and I forgot about that before I started unleashing this on the world um, you discussed something really interesting with me before we came into the studio um, which was segue, but on the topic of kind of being an entrepreneur and the challenge you face of finding uh, technical co-founders um, can you share that with anybody because you were struggling to find obviously the technical talent because it's quite a complex problem mm. to solve um, and, and please mention what you said you found successful sure um, sure so um, we've been looking for so we've been expanding our team over the last few months um, um, we're well we're three co-founders and we're looking for more deep learning engineers and so on um, so I guess we've, we're using multiple strategies one thing is word of mouth um, the other thing is um, just posting on like AngelList and all those um, uh, platforms but then what proved very helpful is to um, look at the vast amount of, of London meetups in AI deep learning entrepreneurship and so on and just like post a line there saying hey we're so-and-so, we're looking for someone in deep learning, for instance, uh, give us a shout. And it attracted really interesting, really interesting people. So I'm quite happy about this, this quick decision of like, okay, maybe we just go for that. Mm. It was great. It's more, uh, it's more like, I guess, the dating analogy of, of a recruitment drive and somebody finding through a recruitment platform is looking for a job. doesn't mean they don't care about what you're doing, but they want a paycheck and they have their their you know, idea of what that's going to look like whereas a meetup group you're kind of going to meet up with like-minded people and then you find a really amazing opportunity that you want to go and invest in being part of which is a slightly different way of thinking about it than mm. just going I'm looking for a job where it's a bit more mercenary yeah I think so too yeah and sometimes sorry I think what's um difficult as a startup that you probably don't especially early days you don't go and and use all the like different recruiters or recruitment sites also I'm, I'm never sure what I, what to think of them either but I mean obviously they bring they bring people um, so you just self-initiate so you look at your uh, university peers like for us Imperial College you, you um, look at the free pages and just try to kind of create your network around it so um, I think it's nice if you're able to reach uh, just a large amount of people and just because it's really important to have interesting people in the team. It's just great the diversity as well and different interests. So I think that's been quite good in the last few like yeah, weeks, actually, finding people. And Ollie, would you take it into the... Yeah, well, thank you. You've been really generous with your time. Um, one thing we'd like to do to end, end up is to ask whether... If, if you wanted to ask our listeners for something that could help you in your endeavour, what would it be? Hmm. Well, I guess there's two things I often ask for. I think um, we're always looking for like, interesting people who are, are, are looking to just understand people's behavior, looking and just work on the forefront of AI, and, but also looking at yeah, how to make autonomous vehicles better with people. So I think talent in a way to support us. And we're um, 
building partnerships we're building partnerships with industry we're building partnerships with um, with our public sector and mm-hmm. with just supporters mm-hmm. in general so I think those are the two things we're like happy to hear from cool. anyone who's interested really and how can people reach you um, well the best thing is really via um, either LinkedIn via um, a website or um, yeah I yeah we'll post links to it well Sounds great good. thank you so much it's been really really interesting really, really thank, thank you guys thank you so much for coming on. Cool. if you enjoyed this or any of our other conversations we'd love to get your feedback our twitter handle is at the startup mike mic or get us an email audio ed at startupmicrodose.com if you're feeling particularly generous of spirit a review on itunes would go a long way to ensuring that we can continue to bring you these conversations finally this recording could not have happened without the support of founders factory backed entail their podcasting software and studio in the daily mail building london are as ever the unassuming stars of our show check out entail.co and thank you for listening Goodbye.